Okay, this morning we're going to finish our, our short teaching series that we've been doing entitled Set Apart, A Biblical View of Holiness. So this is going to be part four, our final um, installment of the series. Can we stand together, please? I want to read uh, a fairly large or larger portion of scripture. And um, you can just listen along. Pretend like we're in the first century. No one owns their own Bible. The letter has shown up. The public reading of scripture is about to happen. This is taken from the book of John, chapter 17, beginning in verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I did not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate, or hagios, I set myself apart that they may also be set apart in truth. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for praying for us. You go on to say this, this isn't only for those in the room, for those who will believe in me. Lord, thank you for praying for us. Thank you for interceding for us even now as we gather in your name. I pray that this morning... Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you lead us, guide us into all truth? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, guys. This morning is going to be uh, more of a practical sermon than normally. And I say practical, and then I uh, inevitably I'll listen back to my sermon. I'm like, "That, that wasn't nearly as practical as I thought it was going to be. So when I say it's going to be practical, what I mean to say, this is going to be my best attempt at a very practical sermon. Um, And just a bit of a, a, I guess a disqualifier, not disqualifier, qualifier, disqualifier, a little qualifier. Um, This morning, I I want to highlight some things that we've just read out of the book of John that are being spoken to or prayed for specifically to Christians, to followers of Jesus. Um, normally at Grace City, 
we'd like to think that like, hey, this, this is truly a place where anyone can come and experience truth, grace, and new life in Jesus, which means we don't assume that everyone here is a follower of Jesus. Um, either you've been coerced here by a friend, um, or you're like looking, you're curious. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm open, I'm, I'm, I'm here to learn. Um, so for you, this might be a message that's more of like, oh, if I were to, to follow Jesus, if I were to surrender my life, put my faith in Jesus, become a Christian, this is what it might look like. This is what holiness might look like for a Christian who's attempting to live out a set-apart life in Portland. hope that makes sense. Um, this message, our final installment of Set Apart, is going to be a bit of a how-to. Um, think of it as like a, a handbook for uh, a saint's guide to living a holy life in Portland. That would be my subtitle of the message. A saint's guide to living out holiness in a town like Portland. You guys with me? So here's the question. What does it look like to be set apart or to live out holiness in a wonderful, weird, fairly intense town like Portland? Uh, you may have picked up some of the words that I was emphasizing as we read the text. In the world. I'm sending them into the world. But they're not of the world. And sometimes if, you, if you're sort of around Christians, you'll have heard this phrase, uh, be in the world but not of the world. Th that phrase isn't actually found in Scripture, not like explicitly in those terms. Uh, but certainly the, the, the sentiment, the the principle is right there in John 17. It's a couple of other places as well, but it's, it's, that's basically where it's coming from. This idea that as followers of Jesus, we're obviously living in the world, but we're not meant to be of the world. So what might that look like in our context specifically? In the city, but not of the city. In the culture, but not of the culture. What does it look like to be sent into the world without becoming a part of the same broken, fallen system that perhaps we were once delivered out of. How do we do that? Um, I have several points. We'll see how far I get. And number one, remember that there is real tension to hold. Being holy, set apart, a follower of Jesus, um, and in any, any town, but particularly in a town like Portland, while not somehow just getting reabsorbed into the culture itself, into the mainstream way of thinking, into popular uh, Politics or whatever, whatever it is that you're, that's in the air that we're all sort of like breathing and being a part of. First thing, remember, there is very real tension involved. Um, I think generally speaking, most people, not just Christians, not just church folk, but just people in general, 
um, we all sort of agree to this idea of, of moderation. We all espouse moderation. Can we, can we agree on that? Like moderation's good, right? Let's not go to extremes. Uh, I would argue, though, that when push comes to shove, when the pressure's on, when the hot pot's cranked up, did I say that right? You guys have one of those? When the pressure's on, we tend to go to extremes. When anxiety levels begin to rise, moderation's a nice notion, but we tend to go to one extreme or another. And this is what I mean when it comes to um, living out holiness in a town like Portland. This is what I've observed over time. And I think we see the same thing in Scripture. You can either grab a hold of this idea of holiness. I'm set apart. I'm meant to live my life in a way that actually embodies uh, God's standards, what he calls good. Rejecting what he calls evil, hating what he calls evil. Um, reflecting, embodying his image in the world. And we grab a hold of that idea. We see I'm in the world, but I'm out of the world. And we build little like cloisters. We completely separate ourselves from culture in, in so much that we're, we're technically still in the world and that we're like still breathing the same air as everyone else. But really, like, we're so separated from the world that we are no longer actually in it. Not in the sense that Jesus was talking about. He says, I'm sending them. Fathers, you have sent me on mission to rescue a broken world. Now I'm sending my followers into the world. Meaning he's commissioning us to go places and to engage with culture and to befriend people and actually be in the world, be on mission in the world. And we can forget that part. And sometimes we just get so obsessed with like maintaining this idea of holiness that I'm no longer in any way actually on mission in the world. We find our little Christian hideouts and we, uh, we form religious cloisters. And that's one extreme. That's one extreme. The other extreme is... Um, to, well, it's the opposite of that, where we actually are so engaged in reaching, building bridges with people that we love, care about, admire, enjoy, and we want to introduce them to our best friend, Jesus. We want to invite them to experience God's goodness the way we have, and, and so we build bridges of friendship, and after a while, we can begin to sort of um, forget, like, what, where is that line? Where is that tension? And we become of the world. That's what psychologists refer to as duck theory. You guys ever heard this? It's often what happens um, when someone goes undercover, like an undercover officer, begins to, like, act, dress, sound, constantly interact with ducks, and eventually they begin to think, well, I'm, I'm a duck too. They start to lose their identity. And um, that would be the other extreme. There is very real tension. Jesus, he was sent into the world. And almost from day one, we find him engaging with um, broken people. Um, sin. 
disease, death. Um, the woman caught in adultery. Like these very like hard, painful, real life situations. And Jesus wades into the moment. He's like in their lives. He's in that situation. But instead of Jesus becoming absorbed, like instead of Jesus, uh, he goes to the party, right? And he's offered a drink. And it would seem that he's like, has these amazing relationships happening, happening with quote-unquote sinners, and yet he doesn't get absorbed. He actually touches the person with the disease. And he doesn't become unclean. He actually cleanses the person who's quote-unquote impure or unholy. So Jesus models this like a master. He's, he's in relationship. He's engaging with the world around him, but he never loses his his way. He doesn't forget who he is. He is in the world, but never gets absorbed by the darkness. So, real tension. That's point number one. Number two, um, there is an evil one. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Um, some of my favorite people in this room, I'm looking at my wife, um, I admire the way you guys will uh, engage with like really complicated, risky, like the risky stuff of our world, the building relationships with people that are like... Um, I don't, you probably wouldn't see here on a Sunday morning. And I don't want to be like rude and start like, you know, naming specific things or, or people. But like, you know, like building relationships and going places and doing things and engaging with like our world on mission. And I'm like, whoa, that's bold. Like you're, you're really like, like wading in there. And I imagine that there's like a point when, when people around Jesus started getting nervous. They're like, whoa, Jesus, like, don't go too far. Like, you do realize, like, people are beginning to murmur. People are beginning to, like, actually wonder if perhaps you're not the sinner. I mean, you're going to parties with these people. You're building relationships. Like, you're, you're going to some pretty dark places. And I love that. I'm like, that's awesome. How bold, what courage, what love that would compel you to go to these, these places. There is an evil one at work in dark places. And Jesus prays. He says, Father, keep them from the evil one. This is a warning. As we are in the world, wading in to the broken places and befriending hurting people, building bridges, as it were. Remember, there is a willful, evil being that exists in the world that is hell-bent on dragging you to hell. Is that too extreme? I don't think it is. I know it sounds a little melodramatic, but... Um, that's part of the story. Remember, 
as you go, as you wade into the darkness. Don't be naive. Don't forget there is a malevolent, wise, the craftiest of all the created beings, the father of lies, the master of manipulation, who's oh so subtle. Doesn't come at you with blatant lies. Always the half-truths, always the subtle angle. This is the evil one. We must remember when we're in the world, we have an enemy. Number three, remember you're not on a solo mission. In the city, not of the city. Wading into the darkness, but not being overcome. Remember, you're not on a solo mission. Verse 11, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Uh, Jesus prays for this oneness, this unity. Our love for one another a lot. It seems to be like a big deal to Jesus. I'm currently taking a church history class at Western Seminary. You guys know I'm, I'm back at Western Seminary. Yeah, I am sort of, what's the word, dropped out in 2021. <laughs> it was a bad year. You guys remember 2021? 2020, 2021. Yeah, I don't know what you were doing, but let's never go back there. So I hit pause. I hit pause. Now I'm back in seminary, 18 units left. I'm gonna finish, um, finish my master's degree at Western. And so I'm taking a church history course. I, I've taken a couple before, but I'm, I'm, I'm back in deep. And I love it. You know what the most damage that's ever been done to the church has always been within, not without. Even when you think about like, uh, you know, that decade or so where you hear about like, um, and all of the martyrs and, and Rome persecuting, which was a big deal. I don't mean to like make light of it, but it was a very, very, it was like a blip on the radar of Christendom. The real damage that was done to the church historically, it was internal damage. It was Christians fighting or killing Christians. I'm about halfway through the book now, we're just getting into the Inquisition. Power hungry leaders political power mongers who are running the church, literally like hunting down and killing other Christians because they didn't agree with some important point of doctrine. Yeah, uh, I think, talk about the evil one. The evil one loves, loves, loves it when brothers and sisters in Christ um, start to attack each other. Takes us right back to Cain and Abel Um, your engagement with the culture will affect your brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 13 says this. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in a temple's idol. Now, 
you could sort of like leave a blank there. Eating a temple's idol. That's like for total first century. Eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Someone sees you doing that. They don't realize that in Christ, everything's clean. It means nothing. But what if one of your brothers or sisters sees you go in this idol temple? And they don't have the revelation you have. They don't, they don't, they've not, they've not discovered the Bible project yet. You know, they're, they're just not quite there. And it actually, like, it violates their conscience. Or look, look at what happens if we go on. Eating in an idol's temple. Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols in their mind? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And then Romans 14, 16 um, puts it this way, much more succinctly. So do, not let you re- so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In other words, as you are engaging the world around you, on mission, in the world, wading into the dark places, building relationships, going places where other people might be like, uh-huh, like, what, okay, what's going on there? What are you doing? They could end up just judging you, which would be unfortunate, mostly for them, because um, Jesus does not like it when we pass judgment on each other. Who am I to judge the servant of another? Worse, they see you go into the, let's say, the idol's temple, that place that in their mind is associated with um. Let's say an old sin that they used to be in bondage to. Maybe it's a sexual sin. Maybe, uh, maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's, it's something that in their mind they see the Christian brother or sister that they look up to going someplace that then emboldens them to think, well, I guess it's okay then. Well, shoot. If, if, they, if they're okay with it, let's go to the bar. Let's go to the strip club. Let's, let's go do the thing that then ends up leading them to be torn back down, be led back into this bondage. Um, We're not on solo missions, each one of us out kind of doing our own thing. Your decisions affect me and vice versa. That means I'm responsible for you. And vice versa. How do you feel about that? Um, there's another word for that. It's a theological term. Yeah, I like to impress you guys with this stuff. Um, the word is love. Yeah. It's, it's just love. It's being loving. It's when I realize, like, oh, the freedom that I'm enjoying is actually causing someone around me to stumble, that, that should concern me in the name of love. That deeply concerns me. It's unfortunate that you're stumbling because maybe it's, just, it's, a, it's an immaturity on your part. It'd be wonderful if you could just get the revelation and realize, hey, it's just food. It, it means nothing. It's, Jesus said, it's all clean. 
be great, if, you know, may, but maybe we could get there together. Maybe I could come alongside of you. But at the end of the day, if it's going to cause you to stumble, if it's going to tear you down, if it's going to violate your conscience, I will never eat meat again around you. <laughs> Just won't do it. It's not worth it. It's more important to me that you're, that you're built up. That's love. That's gentleness. As we're living out holiness in a city like Portland, Portland my, my friends, my friends, um, this is very, very hard. This is very important to remember. This is what love looks like. Now, it doesn't mean I can like frantically run around checking in with everyone like, oh my goodness, what a nightmare. Like, did that thing I say, did that thing I do, like, is everyone okay? Is it, you know, I'm just kind of like constantly paranoid that like I'm going to say the wrong thing or go to the wrong place. And, and that's, that's obviously not the point. The point is that my heart is soft towards you. That if I become aware, like, oh my gosh, like I'm causing, I'm, I'm doing something that's violating your conscience, oh, I care. I deeply, deeply care. Should we get together? Should we, should we chat? Can we, can we connect? Can I share my heart? Can I hear yours? We bear with one another with patience, with humility. That's number three. You're not on a solo mission. Number four, remember the world will hate you. In case you've forgotten. Jesus said in verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. For some... For some of you, this will um, challenge your well-placed desire to build bridges of friendship with those whom you are reaching out to. For some of you, this will be hard simply because you desperately want want to be liked by the people around you. As we are engaging our city as uh, people who are set apart, saints, we're wading into the, the complicated places, the dark places, going to the parties, going, and people are looking at us sideways, wondering, like, I thought you were a Christian. What are you, you know, we're doing all the things. We're, we're, we're wading into those dark places. <clears throat> Not ignorant that there is an enemy waiting for us there. Like, this is risky business, right? Jesus leads us into some pretty um, intense places. But we're there. Right where Jesus is leading us. There will come a point to where something about your love for Jesus and your choice to say yes to Jesus and no to sin uh, based on his standards, it's going to end up upsetting someone. Someone's going to end up finding out that you're like a real follower of Jesus and they're going to hate you for it. Are you okay with that? Are you? <laughs> I'm not. But, I'll, but I'm working on it. I, I'm the second one. I'm the second guy. I want everyone to like me. Oh my goodness, I want it so bad. I want it so much. And Jesus is helping me. Not everyone's going to like me. 
people will misunderstand me. And I'll desperately want to be like, no, 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 you don't get it. Let me, let me unpack it. Like, no, no, God, God's sexual ethic is actually really, really loving. No, you're a bigot. I hate you. Leave. Go away. I saw a bumper sticker uh, two days ago. I see it multiple times around the city. It says, um, it's got a little picture of Dracula. And then next to it are the words, I may be a monster, but at least I'm not a Christian. Has anyone seen that, that bumper sticker around? And it hurts my feelings every time. <laughs> I just want to like pull over and be like, hey, hey, no, 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 I'm, I'm nice. I'm, don't, no, no, like you don't understand. You don't understand. Let me explain it all to you. <laughs> and, you know, if that ever happens, if that opportunity arises, wonderful. That would be great. And maybe that person will stop hating me. Or maybe that just won't happen. Maybe, in fact, what Jesus said is it's true that there is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And there will come points where people will, whether it's through like a conversation where like you're really talking about the things and something is said explicitly that causes them to realize like, oh, I, so you're basically saying that if I don't put my faith in Jesus, I'm going, someday I might go to hell. Like, that's an awkward conversation. Doesn't happen often, but like that, that would upset someone. More often than not, it just, it's, it's felt. People can figure it out. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you, you're like one of those like Bible-believing Christians. I hate you now. <clears throat> yeah, don't forget that. Have courage. Have courage. Remember, this is number five. Remember your name. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Um, which commandment is it? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Which one is that? It's been a while since I've... It's one of the big ten, right? Don't take the Lord your God's name in vain. And of course we all know what that means, right? Like don't use God's name as a bad word. That's totally not what that means. But we've all been taught that, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that we like use God as like a cuss word, right? That's just rude. That's just mean. What it really means is that if you claim to be a family member of God or like the bride of Christ, because my bride took my name, that means as you go out into the world, like live as if you were actually a beloved child of God. Don't forget who you are. This is connected to the previous point. When we're out in the world, we're in the world, not of the world, on mission as saints, living out like God's life in wonderful, weird Portland, and people end up misunderstanding us or understanding us perfectly and hating us all the more. It's tempting to think, oh my gosh, what I need to do is just... Um, Somehow, somehow just change the way I'm acting because obviously I've done 
something or I've said something and the temptation can be to think that the, the problem is there's something about what I'm doing or the words that I'm saying that, that, that needs to be adjusted or toned down or tweaked. And we end up forgetting that it's not actually about that. God's not inviting me to simply act different. Last week we read in the book of 2 Timothy, you can do like all the most religious, churchy things you can imagine and have the appearance of godliness and completely deny the power of God. You can do all the things. You can play the part. You can perfect religious rote and utterly miss like the heart, which is God loves you and went on mission to bring you home. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. This is what I feel on my heart. This is what God would say to his people, particularly those who feel far, far off, like unworthy to come to the front row. This is what God wants you to know. I love you and I miss you. Won't you please come home? That's the word of the Lord. While I was opposed to God, while I was God's enemy, he sent his son into the world, not to condemn me, but to die for me, to love me, to say, Simon, come home, come home. This is God's heart. God's not just trying to get us to act different. God wants us to join his family, to take his name. Will I act different? I hope so. I hope it's not just like this, like a, like a sentimental notion. Does God want me to change my behavior? Of, of course, of course. Because when someone begins to live out the reality of being loved, oh, it changes everything. It just, it just turns your whole world upside down. It's quite a ride. But the heart, the essence, the point, don't forget your name. Don't forget what this is really all about. Particularly when you find yourself in that, like, you talk about holding the tension. Feeling like the light, darkness, come crashing together. And there you are, right in the middle of it. What do you do? Where do you go? How do you react? Don't forget who you are. Everything else flows from that. Two more points. There's seven, if you're counting. It's the holy sermon. <laughs> Remember what's true. I think the last three points all kind of build on each other. Verse 18 through 19, Jesus said, As you sent me into the world, 
I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. That's the word holy, hagios. It's the Greek word. I make myself to be set apart. I consecrate myself so that they may also be sanctified or set apart in truth. Living in Portland, or anywhere for that matter, but living in Portland can sometimes feel like getting turned around deep underwater. We can come... Uh, become disoriented and start swimming furiously in the wrong direction, desperate for air. God's word reorients us. God's word is truth. Learn to meditate on God's word. It will be like a lamp in the dark moments. It will give you wisdom when the tension it gets impossible. It will remind you of your name when the culture is screaming at you that you're someone else. This is um, one of those things I have to remind myself to remind my brothers and sisters um, that this is a good thing. Reading your Bible, that's, that's really what I'm saying. You want, you want to do this? You want to be in the world without getting consumed by the world? Learn to meditate on God's word daily. Old school. I think I've shared this story, but it's a good one. It's one that I will never, ever forget. I was at my first uh, theological conference. So this is while I was um, at seminary in London. Great, great experience. Um, studying theology with Anglicans for five years. Uh, British people are really smart. You ever notice that? Or at least they sound smart. They, they, they put on a good show. Um, or maybe they're just really smart. I don't know. So I go to this theological conference at King's College in London. Bunch of PhDs in the room. All throwing around Greek and Hebrew. Little Latin like it's nothing. And um, there was a guy there who wrote a book, big, big book, called The Deliverance of God. And my New Testament systematics teacher, um, Chris Tilling, he was also my Greek teacher for a year. He was hosting it. He was kind of emceeing it. And I invited myself to this conference. And I'm sitting in this room. And uh, immediately, all of my sort of uh, delusions of grandeur, thinking that I was, I was going to become just like these smart Anglican Brits. I was going to be the next N.T. Wright. I just knew it. I could feel it in my bones. And all of a sudden, like, well, that ain't happening. Like, because I was in a room with, like, actual smart people. And I felt very small and stupid. And then on the break, I'm trying to, like, mingle and, like, be invisible. But there was one guy there. I heard his accent. And he sounded American. So I walked up to him, like, oh, hey, what's up? Like, American? Oh, yeah, me too. How's it going, brother? And uh, we start chatting, and I said, hey, can I, can I confess? I, um, I was really excited to be here, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I just started seminary, and, man, uh, all of this is, like, super cool, and I am so overwhelmed. Like, and was it like this for you? 
because um, he was like one of the, I, I knew that he was one of the smart people. Like they had all these scholars there, right? And um, I said, what, what's your advice? What's your advice? He was like, I received your confession. Appreciate your honesty. Um, yeah, I, I'll give you some advice. Read your Bible. If you can, read your Bible every day. Not just to get smarter, to stay close to Jesus. Super good advice. We talked a little bit longer, and, and he was very gracious. He wasn't being like, he wasn't judging all the scholars in the room, but he said, you know, there's something about, um, you know, learning, scholarship, these sort of intellectual kind of moments. A lot of the men in this room, um, I think it was mostly men, uh, oh my goodness, they know everything that there is to be known about the Bible. But I can almost guarantee you it's probably been years since they've just sat down to like, just, just to do a devotional, just to connect with Jesus. No Greek, no Hebrew, all that, that stuff can help, right? It's not about turning off your brain so you can do something like intimate with Jesus. If we're going to be in the world and not be eaten alive, not lose our way, we need to learn how to meditate on God's word every day. This is how we remember who we are. And we find ourselves just getting disoriented by the world around us and all the voices and opinions and everything else. And we're beginning to run out of air and we're like desperately, like furiously swimming only to find like, dude, I'm like swimming straight down into the abyss. God's word reorients us. It reminds me, oh, this is who I am. I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved. I'm loved, I'm loved. I'm God's beloved. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, maybe I really have lost my way. And I'm all discombobulated. I open God's word and I'm like, okay, now this is the truth. This is the truth. This is where freedom begins. Jesus, lead me. Final point. Do you guys want a quick, quick summary? Remember, this is point number one. Remember, there's a very real tension to hold. Number two, remember there is an evil one. Remember you are not on a solo mission. Remember the world will hate you. Remember your name. Number six, remember what's true. Read your Bible. And number seven, remember there is joy in the journey. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Living in constant tension can be exhausting. There's a reason why we sort of will go to extremes. It's tempting to either go a total native or simply cloister yourself off 
but living in the third space. In Portland, but not of Portland, where reliance on Jesus becomes as necessary as the air we breathe, that's where the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. There will be days when it feels like it's not worth it anymore. Hold on. Don't give up. Cry out to Jesus. In the boat, in the storm, cry out. Jesus, help. There are seasons of desolation and consolation. Usually when you're in a season of desolation where there's very little, if any, joy to be found, it feels like that season is never going to end. Perspective completely out the window. You can't even remember the last time you actually felt hope. Hold on. There are seasons. To all you aspiring preachers out there, here's a, pre, a, a free pro tip for you. It's never wrong to end with a C.S. Lewis quote. So, in his letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Can we stand together, please?